Hi all, welcome to Anime Echoes. We'll be going through Volume 4 and specifically exploring the characters of Roy, Edith and Beg, the idea of escapism and what I thought about the characters. If you want my overall thoughts on the volume, then check out my overall thoughts podcast episode. Without further ado, let's begin with Roy. When we see Roy for the first time, he is introduced as someone who's high as a kite, completely drugged up. He's completely dazed and from his perspective, all of his surroundings are merging together a real psychedelic experience. He's removed from said experience by his girlfriend, Edith. She brings him back to the real world and is angry with him. See, Roy promised that he would quit using drugs and we also find out later that Roy is especially sensitive to drugs in general, so it's for a good reason. The fight takes a turn for the worst and she storms off frustrated, telling him to go die. The scene is quite important. It helps showcase what Edith's role is in the relationship, but more importantly, it helps to foreshadow future events and themes in the story. It's important to acknowledge that Edith takes Roy from being on drugs and drags him back into the real world. She's the one who interrupts his session. She's the one who's mad that he's constantly using drugs. As the story progresses, you'll see that this action from Edith, bringing Roy back, is a fundamental part of the theme of connecting to the real world and not dissociating from it. So please keep this dynamic of Edith bringing Roy into reality in mind. After Roy comes down from his high, he feels very guilty. He knows he hurt Edith's feelings, and what's worse, he broke a promise. He wants to find Edith and apologise, and he goes to do this. He continues to tell himself, I'm going to quit this time. I'm going to do it. This time, for sure. This is my last time. It's pretty clear that this represents the stories that we make up when we're addicted to something, where after doing the deed, the rationality and guilt returns, and we vow to not do it again. But these thoughts are exactly just that useless rationalizations that ultimately are overcome when the product is in front of you. When something that you're addicted to is right in your arms, anyone on the outside may feel like a rational choice can be made, but for the user, it's a completely different experience. Your senses are going wild and it's drawing you in. And we see just this happen. Imagine how many times Roy has told himself this is the last time, and then proceeds to trip, dissociate from his present, and pushes his consciousness into the future. He goes on a trip right again, right after that aforementioned trip. We get further insight into the nature of the addiction. See, Roy isn't someone who doesn't fear the withdrawals that come afterwards. He fears them for dear life. When he comes back to consciousness, he tends to be incredibly scared because he doesn't even know what he's done all this time. That being said, he's willing to go through that fear over and over again. He has the determination to be terrified again and again, all for the sake of having the next high. He's willing to go through a period of suffering as long as there is subsequent bliss. He's ultimately determined to have temporary highs. What's interesting is that he understands all of this, especially when he's conscious. He knows full well what he's doing, and the consequences. There's no ignorance to be had here, which I think is important to highlight. Even if you know something's bad, within addiction, the truth may not be enough. Though there is one thing different this time. He now has a black bag next to him filled with white packets, and he finds out that during his trip, he ended up stealing it from the Runarada family, a large mafia syndicate that could have his head on a spike for stealing all their drugs. He's terrified now, so terrified that he hasn't used the drugs he stole to ease his suffering. He has the entire black bag filled with them, and he's holding himself back. This is quite contrary to how Roy has been. We think he'd jump at the chance to have so many. But Roy knows that the consequences this time isn't anxiety. It's the end of his life. It's death. So despite Roy being addicted, he's still scared to death, and fortunately, that means he's still tethered to the physical world. He doesn't want to die. Edith even points this out. 
She's thankful her boyfriend has some sense within him, and since he finally kept his promise of not shooting up, she promises to him that she'll help him through this conflict, to just leave it to her. She says she'll smooth things over and protect him from the Runerada family and also the Gandalf family as well. She proceeds to take the bag, and that was the promise from her to him. Despite Edith's willingness to clean up everything for Roy, Roy believes he can't make Edith do that. He takes his life into his own hands and goes to an information broker to obtain some information that could possibly help him. Once he arrives at the Daily Days, Henry, a member of the company, tells him that he needs to go after Eve Genoard because he can use her as leverage against the Runerata family. He tells him that Eve's parents and brother were in a relationship with the Runerata family, but they were killed by them. And the Runerata family don't want any of this to get out. Having Eve would allow him to have leverage over the family that would try to kill him. During this scene, we know that Henry is wanting chaos to occur by giving Roy specific information he can use. So in this scene, we the reader are completely under the impression that Roy is getting trolled in some way, and it won't work out great for him. Roy goes and finds the Genoide residence and ends up meeting Eve. To his surprise, Eve mentions the Gandalf family. This sends Roy into a tizzy. He wasn't expecting to hear the other family that he was afraid of. See, the Gandals are strictly against the use of drugs, and if they found out he had a bag of them, he's scared that they would ice him, despite Edith working for them as well. He freaks out and thinks that perhaps he's hallucinating, still doped on drugs. I guess if anything happens that doesn't make any sense to him, he tends to believe he's using. He's that reliant on them. Eve's asking about a family. She wants to know what happened to them. Are they still alive? Roy knew from Henry that her family was dead, but he didn't want to break the girl's heart despite contemplating kidnapping her. He knows he would be the devil if he hurt her. He thinks to himself that he doesn't want to take the girl's future away. He's already screwed over his own future. He doesn't want to take away her hope by revealing that a family's dead. Using Eve as a case against the Runerada family would also snuff out her future. They would kill her for sure. And if Eve dies, then he has no leverage anyway. There was no way this plan was ever going to work. There was no way to come out on top. His plan never made any sense to begin with. And then he realises that Henry screwed him over. Eve asks to see the Gandors. Despite being terrified, Eve and Roy both travel to the Gandor family. And as they do this, they meet Keith Gandor's wife, Kate. They form a connection with her, but they end up getting captured by Claire, disguised as Felix. Eventually, they end up at the Daily Days, and this is the climax location of the novel. The place where all the pieces have come together. But for this episode, we're just following the perspective of a couple characters, Roy, Edith and Beg. Roy and Eve are together at one point at this location, but they lose each other eventually. Roy curses himself and his self-loathing begins. He's disappointed in himself. He wants to stop doing the wrong thing and then making Edith have to clean up after him. He wants to stop relying on Edith. Eventually, Edith and Roy run into each other and Edith slaps him in the face. She says she made a promise, a promise she planned to keep. Why'd he run off? Why couldn't he just rely on her? It's a heartfelt scene between Roy and Edith finally reuniting, after Roy going off on his own to try solve his own problems. Following them reuniting, Beg shows up, which puts a spanner in the works. Beg tempts Roy with a new drug, a new one that will send him eternally into a feeling of pleasure. A complete escape from reality, quite the temptation for a person addicted to drugs. Beg knows that Roy is sensitive to drugs, that he had a fairly strong reaction, so he knows that if he takes a new drug, he'll leave the world for good. In order to force Roy to take it, he pulls a gun on Edith. Using her as a hostage, he forces Roy to act the way he wants him to. Roy has no choice. He injects himself with the drug. It's coursing through his veins, 
tensions running high as the drug enters more into his body. Despite this, Roy takes swift action. He cuts his arm on the window glass, blood spraying out like a sprinkler in order to get the drugs out of his system. A complete rejection of the drugs. He exclaims almost as a war cry that he won't live in a world that doesn't have Edith. There's no fictional world, no pleasure-filled state that could ever be greater than what he experiences with her. She's his tether to reality, to the world that exists around him. Begs wondering why he wouldn't want to just stay within his inside world. A pleasure state internally that's completely detached from reality. Well, that's because, as mentioned before, that world doesn't have Edith. Despite his constant need for escapism, he's still attached to the extroverted world, or at the very least, Edith. Roy says, don't break my world, which means in essence, don't hurt Edith, because she is his world. This entire scene is accompanied by a fantastic image showcasing Roy's conviction to not only just be with Edith, but also to accept reality. After this scene, Roy is talking about feeling connected to everything again, a feeling that he is the world and that the world is him. He thinks to himself that there's something missing. Within this world, there's no one there except for him. You would think that he's on a drug trip, but turns out he's just waking up from having cut his arm viciously on the window previously. He's in Fred's hospital, and Edith is looking over him. They don't really know what to say to each other. There's a certain awkwardness in their interactions. But ultimately, Edith's really glad Roy woke up. She thought he might not. Roy thanks Edith and apologises for the trouble he's caused. Edith tells him he doesn't have to worry about the black bag anymore. The Gandals have intervened and taken care of it. So Edith did find a way to solve Roy's problem. While Roy did cause Edith a lot of problems and does put his problems on her, in this specific scenario with the black bag, I think it's clear that the author believes relying on Edith would have been the correct decision. I think the reason for this has to do with promises. See, promises are sacred for Edith. Roy was constantly breaking his promises, but Edith made a promise to Roy that she would solve the problem. And I think Roy was supposed to respect that promise and then finally keep his own by not doing drugs anymore. He wasn't supposed to go off on his own. So while Roy shouldn't put his problems onto Edith, in this case, he was supposed to keep his promise. Promises are supposed to be kept. Anyhow, Roy now doesn't have to turn himself in. The Gandals have covered the situation with the black bag. As compensation for that, Roy will be working with the Gandals from now on. He has a new promise that he has to keep. And that's not just to the Gandals, but with Edith. A precious promise he cannot break. He has to work for them. So basically, he has a bunch of work to do now. And with that, he's caught. He can't do drugs anymore. Because it would stop him from working. And since the Gandals are a mafia family and would ice him for doing a bad job, he'll definitely have to do it with a sound mind. Once again for Roy, the fear of death is a good motivator for him to not trip out. But he also has another reason now. Or a reason he's always known but only recently allowed himself to fully commit to. The reason is Edith. And as proof, he finally notices that Edith has cut her hair. It took him a really long time to notice and Edith calls him an idiot for it. Edith's been calling Roy an idiot for everything, so when he heard those words, it felt kind of familiar and right. But this time when he heard it, he was happy. It seems by making his grand decision to be in reality and learning how precious Edith is to him has made his connection with her deeper. She is his world after all. Now this is all told from Roy's perspective, but Edith has many parts to play within this novel which are quickly glossed over. For example, you might be wondering how Edith came to be like relying on the Gandals. How are the Gandals not trying to kill Roy? How did Edith end up with Roy? How does Beg show up? We'll now be going through Edith's character and her perspective. So when Edith decides to take the black bag from Roy, she ends up giving it to Leah, 
a friend at the jazz hall she works at. The jazz hall is part of the Gandalf family, and at this said jazz hall, Nicholas and Eileen are sitting in hearing to this conversation between Edith and Leah. Edith saw the note that Roy left him, saying that he would fix everything himself. She thinks to herself that he's an idiot. He should be relying on her. She told him that he, she would take care of it. She's willing to do anything for Roy, and I mean anything, even taking bullets for the guy. She really shows a resolve going to the Gandalf family that could potentially kill her. She says she made a promise, and a promise is worth dying for. It's clear that within their relationship, a promise from her perspective is absolute, a verbal exchange where one's actions are now bound to the agreement. As mentioned before, I think Roy also begins valuing promises as well by the end of the novel. She goes to the Daily Days to get some information to find Roy. Henry basically abstains from giving her anything until she gives him some good information, like information about Vino. She comes clean to the Gandors that she believes she betrayed them for not telling them about Roy and the drugs. Now Edith's under the impression that she could potentially die right now. That being said, this entire scene was pretty hilarious. See, the Gandors aren't ruthless monsters. In fact, their brother Claire, also known as Vino, the person Edith's actually looking for, also thinks that they aren't quite cut out for it. They're thinking they can't hurt Edith. She's a woman. If she was a guy, they could just punch him to make everything okay. But since she's a woman, they decide to cut her hair as punishment. The Gandals know that they have a reputation to uphold. And also the Mafia Code dictates that anything done to them should be met with some sort of punishment. But the punishment that they give, like what happens, is that they give Edith a haircut. That's the punishment. Ironically, the haircut ends up making her look even better than before. And luckily for us, there's an image of a haircut too in the novel. I really enjoyed this scene. I thought it was hilarious, just really funny. Like Keith, Luck and Berger are just complete goofballs. They really aren't cut out to be mafia members. After this, she explains her situation to Claire, who's the person she's been looking for, the person named Vino. They go together to the Daily Days and Claire proceeds to torture Henry over the tracks and obtain what he needs to know. After this... We can jump to Edith and Roy reuniting together again, and then Beg appearing before them holding a gun. So that's all for Edith's character. I really liked her, I thought she was really strong-willed, and I think Roy's lucky to have someone like that. She's a pretty great character, and I hope we get to see more of her going forward. I really liked her dynamic with Roy. She really is the tether that kind of holds them together. Now let's move on to Beck, the guy who we just mentioned that decided to pull a gun on Roy and Edith and tries to force Roy to take a drug that would result in eternal pleasure. He's Miser and Shez's acquaintance. Since they know him, two immortals, we can also assume that he's an immortal himself. A fellow member of the Advina Avis, his name's Beg, and he wants to leave this world. We start Beg's story with him being confronted by Miser. He's told that he shouldn't expand his operations into the turf Miser is a part of, the Matillo family's turfs. Beg's part of a similar gang, a far more powerful gang named the Runarada family, and he is an esteemed member of the group. They have been expanding their drug trade and word of it had entered Miser's ears. Doing deals in another mafioso's turf is language for war, and Beg understood this notion well. See, different turfs are owned by different mafias or gangs. They take up certain territory on a map. The ground or the turf's gang occupies cannot be intruded upon by another gang. You get caught in another gang's turf, then you're in danger. You're trespassing, and what's way worse, if you sell products in another gang's turf. Miser and Beg understood the ins and outs of how Mafia works, and so they both understood this notion. Despite this mutual understanding, there was something that ran deeper. As mentioned before, they both travelled on the Advina Avis, the ship of immortals. 
They were acquainted. When Miser appeared before Beg to tell him to not trade drugs on the Matilla turf, he didn't just do that because he was a member of the Matilla family. He also didn't want to have to kill or hurt an old friend. They had shared a voyage together, bonds were formed and held fast. Due to this, Beg agrees willingly, but Miser seems sad, almost disappointed. He got what he wanted, so why the somber look towards his friend? Within Miser's heart, he doesn't want Beg to distribute drugs, period. He wants him to stop the drug trade in of itself. Miser believes that despite his immortality, these drugs will take a toll on his body. See, Beg was also using the drug, but it can be considered an odd thing to tell an immortal, to tell them to consider their body as something that could be harmed. Like, what's the harm of hurting yourself if you don't die? Despite this, Miser is concerned for his soul also. They're doing drugs to the degree that he does it, and the degree that his drug trade makes other people use them, ultimately tarnishes the souls of everyone. Miser believes he's hurting his own soul and the souls of others. While Beg had agreed to seize the drug distribution in Miser's turf, to stop the distribution of drugs in his totality was unthinkable. He didn't see drugs the way Miser did. He didn't see them as products used only by fools. What Beg saw were pills that took him to new worlds. See, when you take these drugs, you get further and further from reality. Taking them too much has an almost hallucinogenic effect. Beg wants others to feel this effect, and he believes that these drugs will allow him to create the best world for others, and also a specific person as well. Now, with Beg's fixation on drugs, it seems to be rooted in a general fixation on the idea of pleasure. He seems to be drawn into this idea. Beg states, People seek pleasure on instinct. Instincts are actions humans make from the most base biological drives, and Beg makes the claim that one of these main instincts is seeking pleasure. He values a state of no pain, a state of only pleasure. He wants to provide this state to himself and others. This is his motivation for the distribution of drugs. It's well-intentioned, but not all well-intentioned actions are actually good. Not every thought is a welcome idea. When we jump to the climax scene from the novel, we'll see just how off his rocker Beg is. During the climactic scene where Beg injects Roy, a man who's been using drugs for a very long time, he wants to see this man before him go into a world that he will never come back from. He's forcing him to use the drug. The drug is supposed to give him eternal pleasure outside of anything else. He takes quite drastic actions for this to happen. He even holds a gun to Roy's loved one, Edith. Roy injects the drug for the sake of Edith and Beg believes everything will turn out the way he wants to. As mentioned before, contrary to that belief, Roy slices his arm on window glass to bleed out the drugs, an intense method that showcases his determination to reject the effect of the drug, to not leave the world he's in, to deny the potential euphoria that Beg offers. This action confuses Beg to his core. Why go that far? Why not just accept the new world you would be a part of? You'd be in the midst of intense pleasure. You'll be able to die within your own world. The euphoric world. Beg cannot fathom why Roy would reject a state of pleasure. But Roy states that Edith is not part of that world, and that's his tether. That's what keeps him going, his love for her. That's what connects him to the outside world, despite the drugs he constantly uses to dissociate. Upon seeing his resolve to live in a world of suffering, Beg feels a mix of hatred and sadness. He desperately wants to save Roy. He wants to prove to Roy the pleasure-filled state is absolute, and he feels hatred that Roy essentially showcased the folly in his belief. Beg thinks to himself, is this the exhaustion of the soil you mentioned, Miser? I think what Beg is referring to is the fact that Beg's soul is probably exhausted right now. When he sees someone reject the utopia that he's offering, it draws him into the real world. 
I guess this is reality. The part of life begs been avoiding. When he's forced to confront reality, his soul is laid bare. All this time, Begg's soul has been slowly teared away at with the drugs he's been using, so he's never had a good look at it, so he could never see it. When Roy defies his vision, his soul is laid out for him to see, right in front of him, and it's been exhausted. That exhaustion is what causes him to feel hatred and sadness. He doesn't want to feel attached to the outside world. It is only the inner fantasy of pleasure he values. Chasing after one high after another will make someone eventually dissociate from their reality, and the next pleasure will never be enough. A large part of Begg's folly is that his body is getting used to the drugs, but he still wants to take drugs so that he can experience pleasure without pain. As a final act to perhaps calm the bad emotions, or because of witnessing his own soul, or to stop himself from murdering Roy and Edith, he shoots himself in the head. Is this act of temporary death just an act of escapism, just like the drugs? Instead of feeling the hatred fully and experience the sadness fully, and to actually confront reality, he decides to extinguish it by making himself black out temporarily. After this event, we travel in time to 2002. Begg is in a hospital, and turns out, unfortunately, Begg took a turn for the worst. He's muttering to himself with no hope in his eyes at all. He never recovered. He extinguished his soul. It's remained in tatters this whole time. He's muttering with himself about his time with shares on the ship to America. He's recalling a time where he was happy. Beg has transported his psyche to that time. Once again, Beg has removed himself from the real world. He's put himself in a time where he only feels a fake bliss. Miser sees him and pities him. He thinks that maybe eating Beg and putting him out of his misery would actually be more humane in this situation. Though Miser thinks not to do that and lifts his hand away from him and leaves. The only speck of hope from Beg we get is that he thanks Miser again for not eating him. I'm very curious why he thanked him. Is he repeating what he said to Miser a while back? Or is this proof that he sees Miser before him? How actually in the world or out the world is he? Is Beg actually connected to the real world? Or has he completely dissociated? Either way, the Beg before us is quite tragic. I thought Beg was a pretty interesting character, and he has a lot of similarities to Roy. It seems like Beg rejected the outside world a very long time ago, but Roy hadn't. Roy had dipped out of reality many times, but he still had something to hold him back to the world. He still had Edith, and eventually accepts reality in its totality. Beg doubled down on his rejection of reality, and that resulted in him living in a fantasy memory of Chez. Now all in all, those are my thoughts, and that was an analysis of Roy, Edith, and Beg, and escapism in general. Tune in for next week where we go through the Gandalf family and the Daily Days.